We have been in our Advent series, and one of the things that we have made note of throughout this series is that waiting is a part of Christian story. Waiting is a part of our lives. Waiting is a part of God's story. And Advent is a season where we look back with confidence that God has come in Jesus Christ. We are, we are looking into the manger and we are saying, yes, God kept his promises. Indeed, he did come. He did send his son. That God has come in Jesus Christ. That Christ has died. That Christ is risen. That he has ascended. And we experience the already of his kingdom. He is already saving people. He is already bringing about his eternal rule and reign. But we are also a people that looks forward. We do not just look backwards to what God has done. We look forward to what he will do. We look forward to that sin-shattering, hope-realizing day of his return, which makes us a people that are waiting. We are a people that are waiting. And so much of the Christian's story is this. It's living our lives looking back and also living our lives looking forward. We live in the story of two Advents. In fact, we live in the midst of them. In between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Our lives, if you did not know this, are situated within the contexts of God's story. So often it's easy for us to think that our lives revolve around ourselves, but the reality of human history, the reality of your life, is that it's not about you. And so you can breathe and rest. Instead, we're situated within the context of God's story, which is a story of God creating, of humanity falling, of God pursuing and redeeming, and a future hope of God restoring all things to that goodness that once was. An illustration I used last week is that if all of human history were to be condensed into a three-hour film, our lives would not even be a blip on that screen. But what God does for us is there are times where he zooms into specific people's blips on the screen, so to speak. And he gives us glimpses of how he is moving the story along and how he operates. He gives us glimpses of how he works with his people. He gives us glimpses so that we can understand who he is. And he zoomed, and last week we zoomed in on the story of Abraham. The story of a man who was waiting. And we learned a truth as we looked at the story of Abraham, we learned that we as people are shaped by waiting. We learned this truth that throughout the life of Abraham that waiting is a part of the Christian story. Waiting is a part of the Christian life. And what we believe about God is often revealed to us in waiting and in hardship. And it causes us often to ask this question, does God keep his promises? Does God fulfill the word that he says? 
Looking back upon Christ, we can all confidently respond to that question with, yes, absolutely, God keeps his promises. But this confidence is often shaped in us through seasons of waiting. You and I, today, we are awaiting people. And we want to wait well as we wait for Christ's future coming. I want to make a, a brief observation about the text that we are going to be into today. You see, this text is written by Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. Now, you and I do not have the same place in the story and in God's story as Mary did. We, we, we don't have that same place. I mean, I, I'm just guessing, but I can pretty much assume that none of you are a virgin who's carrying the Messiah. <laughs> pretty positive about that. But her song that she sings in these verses that we read just a moment ago is not just about her. You see, the song comes in two parts. The first part is verses 46 through 49, and it's Mary singing about what God has done for her. It's this is who God is to me. And then in verses 50 through 55, we see who God is to everyone else. We're going to spend today just looking at Mary's song, looking at her joyous response to what God has done, and we're going to draw the line to what that means for what God is doing in the world. We're going to use the truths of her song to teach us something this morning, and it's this, that we are awaiting people, and Mary's song is going to teach us how we wait well as we look forward and long for Christ's second coming. So, Here's my, my big picture today. If you, if you want to take something with you this morning, this will be a good reminder to wrap it all up. And it's that we can wait well when we understand who God is and who we are. Let's go ahead and talk about the circumstances of this text before we look a little closer at it. The first circumstance that I want to address is that this is happening and it's situated within the Gospel of Luke. Now, the Gospel of Luke is a, a two-part series. It's Luke and then also the book of Acts. In fact, volume one is, is Luke and volume two is the book of Acts. And they, they work together. They're both written by the same person. They're both written to the same person. In fact, if we go back to verse three of this chapter, chapter one of Luke, verse three, it says that it is written to a man by the name of the most honorable Theophilus. Now, there are two different, pretty concise views of who this person is and pretty uh, agreed upon views of who this person is that this book is being written to. The first is that he's a Roman governor at the time. So he is a, a Roman governor at the time and Luke has seen fit through relationship with him to write these two books and to send them over to him. The second idea of who this man may be who's receiving these books is that he is a Roman official who's overseeing the case of Paul. So Paul the Apostle is the reason in most ways why we have the gospel today because he just goes and spreads it all throughout the Roman Empire. And through the Roman Empire, that trickles down into Europe. And then anyway, we're going to get back to this. Um, so Paul, the apostle, is spreading the good news of the gospel, and it's in the words of Acts, I believe it's chapter 17, turning the world upside down. 
Because it's turning the world upside down, Paul is taken and put in prison. And, and because of his imprisonment, he's underneath a, a trial. And many believe that Luke is helping Paul while Paul is imprisoned to really uh, put together his case in a historical uh, volume that will then be able to be presented in the court of law. So many believe that the person who would be receiving this letter would be either a Roman governor who would have power and might and influence or a Roman official who would have power or might or influence. And so throughout the book of Luke and also into the book of Acts, we see multiple themes just kind of rising to the surface as the main points of these books. The, the first is that God is just sovereign over all of history. The second is that God's kingdom has arrived. And the third is that there is a great reversal that is coming. Now, if you're not familiar with that phrase, this great reversal, what, what Paul is, and or what Luke is starting to point to is he's starting to point to something that's just consistent throughout the prophets. I mean, if we were to go to the book of Amos and it's justice will roll down like rivers. It's in the book of Habakkuk, the glory of God is going to cover the earth. In Isaiah, it's the day when weeping will be no more and will, when justice will be brought down to the nations. What, what's being pointed to throughout the book of Luke is a day that's coming when God is going to humble the proud through his work of justice and he is going to exalt the lowly, giving grace to the humble. Another thing that, that starts to show up throughout the book of Luke that's really important for us, and I don't have time to preach the entirety of Luke today, but these are really helpful themes for us as we enter into this specific song of Mary. Uh, another thing that happens so prevalently in Luke is the role of women. Women are all over the gospel of Luke. In fact, more often than not, Luke is pointing to what women have done to move the kingdom forward. So, this is why this is important. We've talked about who this is being written to. It's to a, a Roman governor, someone with power, someone with influence, someone with a lot of uh, wealth and weight to throw around. And here, in this specific culture, that's not how anybody would define women. In fact, in, in the Roman Empire, women would have been second-class citizens. You have a few, sure, that kind of show up as, as maybe a little bit more prominent, but usually women would be of the second-class citizens. Now, that's culturally what was happening, and what the Bible does is it just lifts up the dignity and value and worth of women. And so what we see throughout the book of Luke is Luke just puts these women who in the Roman Empire would have been viewed as weak and needing protection, he just puts them on display as being mighty workers for the kingdom. In fact, if we were to go to Luke 8, something amazing happens. We see that it's actually women who fund Jesus' ministry. So it's not the, the rich and the wealthy that start to turn the world upside down. It's a homeless rabbi from a no-good town funded by second-class citizens at the time. 
that's just amazing. Like, the, the, like Luke goes out of his way to lift up and to promote the dignity and value and worth of women and, and to the point where he's almost using them to counter the ideas of the world at the time. And so here we have this letter written to a man who has prominence and power and wealth and it's pointing to God's ability to use what we would define as weak to change the world. The great reversal is coming. Here we have this book of the Bible, and all throughout it we are seeing these themes that seem so prominent in Jesus' ministry, that blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the weak, blessed are the humble, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God is doing a work, and these are the people that are the beneficiaries of it. So that's the circumstances of the book of Luke. Now let's go ahead and look at the circumstances of Mary. Mary, as we've just discussed, would have been a woman in a empire that viewed women as second-class citizens. She was a young Jewish girl from the town of Nazareth. She is engaged to be married to Joseph. She tells us in this that she is a woman of lowly estate. Now let's unpack that idea for a moment. Is she just saying this because she's humble? I do think that that's part of it, but I think there's something deeper and something greater happening in this statement of hers. We mentioned women in the Roman Empire, but then we also look to this town of Nazareth, which when Jesus shows up on the scene, being somebody who's from Nazareth, we read this value statement proclaimed over his life from one of his soon-to-be disciples. It's this, does anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the town she's from. So she is a woman in an empire who devalues women from a town that is devalued by people who know of that town. She is of lowly estate. She does not have a lot of in like a power and influence and ability to make changes for the sake of the gospel. She's a young woman from a no-name family in a no-good town. And then to, to tag all of that together, we find this out in this, just right before this text, that she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit, which is a joyous occasion. But there's something else happening in this text that often we miss. She's pregnant outside of her relationship with her fiancé or her betrothed. Now, this should incite great fear. Let me explain why. Let's go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we see a, a story. There is a woman that has been caught in adultery. And the Pharisees who are trying to trip Jesus up, they go and they grab this woman who's been caught in adultery and they bring her before Jesus. Now, a fascinating little tidbit about this story is they bring this woman before Jesus because they, they're, they're trying to trip him up, which means they're trying to hold law against Jesus. 
and they think, we'll bring this woman before him because we know so much about him that surely he won't condemn her, which he doesn't. So she, they bring this woman before him, and he does not condemn her. But the, the point that they're trying to make is, surely this woman, this adulterous woman, should be stoned and should be killed for what she's done. Now, Jesus does not condemn her. He lifts her face. He says, does anyone condemn you? No, neither do I condemn you. Then go and sin no more. And it's a beautiful story, but we're getting a picture of what should have happened to Mary upon realization that she was pregnant outside of the context of her relationship. So here we have this young girl from a no-name town, no-name family, in an empire that devalues women, and we find her in a situation that should incite great fear for her. But there's also something else we learn about the context of Mary's life. If we look at chapter 1, verse 38, it says this, I am the Lord's servant. And it's Mary speaking. She is a, a woman in a desperate situation. She is a woman from a no-good family in a no-name town, and she is on display for what should be a terrifying situation. And we come to her song and we'd expect to read the psalms of one crying over their situation or crying out for deliverance or doubting God's goodness. But that's not what we read at all. What do, what do we see? We see these words, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices. What could possibly be fueling this joy-filled response to her less than ideal circumstances? Well, the first thing that I think stands out to us about this song is that Mary knows who God is. Look at uh, verse 47 with me. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. If we were to go throughout the rest of this song, we'd see multiple things uh, just pulled from the top of the text about God's character. He is a Savior. He sees. He is mighty. He is holy. He does great things. He is merciful. He scatters the proud. He exalts the lowly. He satisfies the hungry with good things. He sends the rich away empty. He remembers his promises. This is who God is, and it's on display in Mary's song. Mary knows who God is. The second thing that stands out to us about this song is that Mary knows who she is. She is God's servant. Verse 48, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. See, Mary can wait well in a season of unknown because she knows who God is and she knows who she is. She recognizes her state. She recognizes that God is God and that she is not. She, she can rejoice because she is honest about her state of being. 
She can rejoice because she recognizes that she is not on the throne of her life. God is. And the God who is on the throne of her life looks at her with favor. That phrase, when it says looks with favor upon her, I, I, think, I think a better way for us to, to use that that would be more faithful to the context of Scripture would be to say, He has set His loving care on her. He looks upon her and He sets His loving care on her. You see, Mary's proclamation is, God, my Savior, has set His loving care on me and has done great things for me. Her future, her assurance, her value is rooted in this statement. God is my Savior and He has set His loving care on me and He has done great things for me. Christian, this is, this is what's true of you. Jamin Roller says this. He says, the foundational value statement of every believer in this room is that God has done great things for me. It's why life has meaning. It's why life has purpose. The foundational value statement over all of us is that God looked upon me. He set his loving care on me. When you were in your humblest state, when you were in your addicted state, when you were in your rebellious state, when you were in your sinful state, he turns his eyes towards you, uses his might for you, and saves you by grace through faith, through Jesus. And when we wait with that kind of heart posture, the kind of heart posture that says, I am who I am because of what God's done for me, we wait well. Christian, this is who you are. Looked upon by God, your value is rooted not in what you do for God, but in what has been done for you, and God has done great things on your behalf. There's this repetitive narrative of Scripture that God does great things for brokenhearted failures who collapse into the arms of grace. That's, yeah, Amen, because I need that. So a couple of exa examples of this. One is one we looked at last week. We have Abraham. Abraham is a nobody from a pagan nation who very early on in his life, we're going to find out, will sell his wife multiple times. From Abraham, we go to Moses. Moses is a man who speaks Poorly, and God says, that's the guy who I want to go talk to the greatest empire on the face of the planet right now. David is the weakest of his brothers, who's going to be the king that starts to inaugurate the, the golden years of the Israelite empire. And what does God do? He, he goes and he picks David. And, and when, um, when Samuel goes to anoint the next king, he gets to Jesse's house and Jesse brings his sons out and puts them on display for Samuel and the one that he doesn't is David because he's like there's no way this guy could be king and that's the one that God anoints if we follow the words that are spoken of the disciples throughout the rest of scripture it's that they're uneducated men and they're the ones that God entrusts with the Great Commission. If we look at the Apostle Paul, 
the, the wording that's used to describe him is, sure, his letters are powerful, but in person, kind of disappointing. <laughs> in fact, early first century descriptions of Paul was that he was shorter, a little bit rounder. He had crooked eyes and a bow leg. That's the person who writes most of our New, New Testament. The people that God uses are not people we would typically pick for the job. But the way that we wait well is not by looking at the people we think God would pick. It's looking at God and knowing who he is. In verses 50 to 55, Mary changes course of her song. She shifts from who God is to her, and she begins to speak to us of who God is to everyone else. You see, Mary looks at her circumstances, and, and, and she's almost going to repeat them, but in a global sense. So her circumstances that God has looked upon her in her humble condition, and he will now uplift her and all nations will call her blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me. And then verse 50 shifts and his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. You see, she looks at her circumstances as a micro example of the great reversal that is to come. The great reversal where if we look in the text, it talks about the proud being scattered and the lowly exalted. The rich being sent away empty, the hungry satisfied with good things. We, we mentioned that all throughout Luke, we see just the Beatitudes on display. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the humble. And the, the opposite of those things would be to say, blessed are the wealthy, blessed are the strong, blessed are the ruthless, blessed are those without any life problems, blessed are those who made it happen for themselves. But what's the great reversal that's being talked about here? That you are not blessed because you made it happen for yourself. You're blessed because you recognize that the reality of the fallen human story is that to make it happen for ourselves is impossible. We need a God who does great things. And we need a God who does great things for us. We need God to set his loving care on us. And he does so for those who recognize their need of a savior. Now, I want to make sure I, I clarify something here. Nowhere in the Bible can we make a case that it's wrong to have wealth or influence. It, it would be pretty hard to make that argument. In fact, in, in a lot of scripture, it's, it's encouraged and wealth and influence is given to those who will steward and trust, or, trust it well. So it's, it's entirely possible and it's encouraged to, to leverage wealth and influence for the good of others and the love of God. It's, it's absolutely a, a theme throughout Scripture. But what's also a theme throughout Scripture is that we can make the case that it's wrong to serve wealth. 
it's wrong to serve power, and that it's much harder to follow Christ if you have one or the other. It is so much harder to see your need for God when you don't think you have it. It is so much harder for those in positions of authority, for those in positions of power, for those with wealth to see and understand that they have a need. In fact, what often happens for those people, and I'll just be honest about what was happening for me this week as I was studying this sermon, I'm reading the sermon, I'm like, man, so many people need to hear about this God who topples the pride, prideful. And I thought of people in my mind that needed to hear this text, which reveals to me that I need this text. <laughs> and chances are, so do you. One of the dangers of being from the part of the world that we find ourselves is we often don't walk in the need that's actually accurate of our soul's condition. In fact, and we're going to talk about this more next week, like 78% of the world's Christians are from non-Western societies because it is much easier to see your need on full display. But the story we're leaning into throughout Advent is that as a waiting people, we are waiting for the great reversal when the proud, the ruthless, the systems of injustice and unrighteousness that so often oppress and tear down will one day be torn down. Our pride has been defeated and will one day finally and fully be defeated by the lowly Savior who did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but instead humbled himself to the point of a cross. And then he rises again, and we see on display the lowly servant of the Lord exalted. The suffering Savior who took on the iniquities of his people who through his stripes we are healed is punished on our behalf. And then he is exalted. See, we are awaiting people. We are waiting for that day when these truths of this song are on full display, that the mighty are toppled, that the lowly are exalted, that the rich are sent away empty, that the hungry are filled with good things. We long and we wait for that day, and we want to wait well. See, my, my wife and I, as we mentioned earlier, are in a season of waiting as we prepare for this next child. 
So a couple of things that we're doing in order to prepare for that is we're preparing our own child for what it means to have somebody else in the home who you have to share mom's attention with. And we're uh, transitioning him to a toddler bed because we're realizing we're going to have to move that crib into another room. And so we're making these plans and, and preparations. We're making changes in our own lives to prepare ourselves for the addition of another child. We're thinking through names. We are setting up doctor's appointments. We're connecting with the hospital. We're going to find out the gender because there is way too much unknown in this world and I don't need more. <laughs> we are waiting well. We are waiting well. You see, we are waiting, but we're actively engaging in that waiting. We, as Christians are in a season of waiting. We are in a season of waiting for the return of Christ. And we as a people are in this season of Advent to orient ourselves, to remind us how we wait well. How we actively engage in that waiting. And there's two ways that we can respond to waiting. The first is we can respond as Mary does. This is who God is, and I am his servant. We can look at our lives as may it be done according to God's word. We can look at the things that we own, our possessions, our families, our jobs, our things, and we can say, all of this is yours, God. Help me to steward it. My life is yours. My job is yours. My possessions are yours. My family is yours. Thank you that you hold it all. And thank you that even if I lose all of it, you're holding me. And we can pray as Jesus does in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The other way that we can respond to this is to functionally believe that we are God. Now, I have never met somebody that would say, I, I think I'm the God of the universe. Pretty good. I think I'm it. Met a lot of people who act like it. I have not met a lot of people who would say it. But every time that we believe that we know better than God, Every time we follow our own wisdom, wisdom as opposed to his, we are functionally saying, I'm on the throne of my life. I am sovereign. I am God. And so what happens with the things that we own and, the, and our possessions and our life and our family is we expect that these things exist to serve us. Because we believe we've earned it. Because we're entitled. There's two ways to respond. One is in humility and the other is in pride. And here's what we see in this text. That to respond with, I am God's humble servant, is to take the position of lowliness that will be exalted. But to respond with, 
this is mine. I am the ruler and the Lord of my life. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed is me. It's to take the role of God and to be adverse to who he is. And to expect that one day the mighty will be taken from their thrones. One thing we have to notice from this text that is not explicit in it, but I do believe it's implicit, is that the great reversal that Mary speaks about here does not happen right away. You see, the season of Advent for us is a waiting and a remembering. So remembering what God has done and looking forward, filled with the confidence of what we've seen to the future hope that we have. But here's the tendency for us, and we spoke briefly about this last week, it's to subvert the waiting. To think that we have a better plan for our lives than God does. It's wanting the promises of the kingdom, but not wanting the king. So we become attracted to power and influence and we seek to attach ourselves to the coattails of those with prominence and we define faithfulness by numbers and what seems successful. And all of us need to be confronted with the words of this song that the mighty are torn down and the lowly are exalted. When we are tempted to believe that what makes our lives valuable is our possessions or our influence or our ability to make a difference or our level of comfort, we need to be confronted with the words of this song that the great reversal is coming. Our value statement is not what we have or what we do. It's that God has done great things for us. He has looked with favor upon our humble estate. The great reversal is coming. Mary probably held on to this song. I can't imagine it was the last time she sang it. But she sings this song about the, the proud being made low, the lowly being exalted. And she's still poor. She still lives in the Roman Empire. She's still part of the 90% of the population at that time that has no ability to make any change in society. She gives birth to a son in a barn. For the first few years of her life, she's on the run, and then she watches as her son grows up to become a homeless rabbi with an entourage of apostles that literally no one would pick for their dream team. She watches as her son is led to the cross and condemned to death. But what happens? in that moment is that upon him being condemned to death, we see the death of death as he rises again victorious. Death stood condemned. 
He rose again. The great reversal has come. What was once dead has now been brought back to life. The proud have been toppled down. The lowly have been exalted. The great reversal has come. And the full realization of this great reversal is coming. Let us not run from that waiting. Let us remember who God is. Let us remember who we are. And let us remember what he has come to do and what his promises are for us as we wait well, anticipating the day where the great reversal is finally and fully realized. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I just want to confess that as I was hit with the words of this text this week, uh, I found myself walking in pride and needing humility, Lord. And so I thank you for your words of Scripture that invite us to see the inevitable route for the proud. That one day we will be brought low. And so, Lord, I, I thank you that you're faithful to confront us with your word. I thank you that you are faithful to reveal to us where we are in need. Lord, there are so many in here, Lord, that, that know that they need you. They, they hunger and thirst for your righteousness, Lord. And so I just pray that you would convince them of their blessed state, to be in a state of desiring that they knew more of who you are, to be in a state of desiring that they looked more like you, Lord. That is a blessed state to be. May we, Lord, look to this song, look to the people that you use and the people that you choose, Lord, and may we look to your cross and remember that your power is made perfect in weakness. May we know who you are. May we see you for who you are in your character, that you are the mighty one and we are not, that you are God and that we are not, that you are Savior and we are not, and yet you have looked upon us. You have placed your loving care on us. May that be the value statement we hold tightly to. We want to wait well, Lord. Help us to wait well. It's in your name we pray. Amen.